Today we're going to once again uh, go through our, our study, continue our study through the book of Matthew. I've uh, been enjoying just going verse by verse systematically through the Word of God. We get to just hear the Word uh, and, and explain it uh, and hopefully make application to our lives. And so we're going to continue that today in Matthew chapter 16. Today in uh, chapter 16, we are once again going to see the Pharisees coming against Jesus and demanding or asking, requesting yet another sign from him. Uh, You'll recall that this is uh, something that they've done before, but this time they bring with them an unlikely partner uh, and another group. And Jesus is going to have some strong warnings for his disciples about these group uh, of people, some some beware of these people, take heed of these people. It made me think of just, you know, those beware signs. You never go to someone's house and they have the beware of dog or beware of this. And some of them can kind of get funny. But uh, he gives a warning. Uh, beware of these people. And so we're going we're gonna to look at that. The disciples, they really didn't understand the warning the first time he gave it to them. And so uh, we're going to break it down for ourselves, explain it, and hopefully be able to make some application to our own lives. And so uh, with that, uh, let's go ahead and read our portion this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. We're going to cover 1 through 12 this morning. And so uh, let's go ahead. Hopefully you've got a Bible. You can open up to Matthew chapter 16. And will you please stand as we read uh, from the Word of God this morning. Matthew chapter 16. As I mentioned, we're going to read uh, the entire portion that we'll be covering today, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 16, verse 1 begins, Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. Verse 2, He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites! You know how to discern the face of the sky, uh, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Verse 5. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. And then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up? nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for uh, this opportunity to go through your word, and we do pray that you would lead and guide our time. We pray that you would uh, give to us just an an expectation 
and really in, in anticipation and in excitement that you're going to speak to us through your word this morning. Lord, I know that we're all dealing with different issues in our lives and uh, whether it be good times or bad times or just uh, in between times, Lord, uh, we pray and I pray that you would meet us here and that you'd speak to us, that we would hear from you. And Lord, that we would allow your word to mold and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. May we not just have an academic study this morning, but Lord, may we make application. Lord, and allow you to uh, do the work and continue the work that you've begun in us. And we just look forward to our time together. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You guys may have a seat. Last week we closed with verse 39 of chapter 15 and it informed us that Jesus and his disciples were heading to the region of Magdala. Okay, Magdala was, uh, we explained last week, I was on the uh, western coast of the Sea of Galilee and the disciples have kind of gone, been zigzagging back and forth across the Sea of Galilee the last few chapters that we've been covering And now that they have arrived, in verse 1, we see that they are approached by a group of people consisting of both Pharisees and Sadducees. We've seen and heard much from the Pharisees through our study of the book of Matthew thus far. You guys will recall that the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders that uh, confronted Jesus and his disciples on numerous occasions. They questioned Jesus and the disciples about eating with tax collectors, about fasting, and about uh, eating grain on the Sabbath. They accused Jesus of uh, casting out demons by the power of Satan. You guys remember that uh, back in chapter 12. And then they also accused the disciples of breaking the tradition of the elders, saying they didn't wash their hands properly. And so they've come against them, and they've been very persistent in their attack upon the Lord. And they've even begun, as we've been covering in the scriptures, they've even begun plotting against him and how they might be able to destroy him, to kill him. New to the scene, however, are the Sadducees. Okay? This is the first time that the Sadducees are mentioned in connection with Jesus in our study of the book of Matthew. The only other time that the Sadducees were even mentioned in the book of Matthew was one time, and that was when they came along with the Pharisees, and they came out to see what all the excitement was about regarding John the Baptist and the ministry that he was doing out in the desert. At that time, John the Baptist, he spoke to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, addressing them as a brood of vipers. And he questioned their sincerity in coming out to see him. What do we know about this group of people known as the Sadducees? What we do know is that uh, the Sadducees, along with the Pharisees uh, and uh, a few other chief priests and elders and scribes, they made up what is called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the high court of the Jews. And the Sanhedrin was granted 
limited authority. Remember that the Jews are not ruling. They don't have their own autonomy to rule over themselves because the Rome is uh, at this time ruling. And, but uh, Rome had given them some authority over certain religious, uh, civil, and even some criminal matters. And it consisted of 70 members plus one officiating member, the high priest. Okay? During the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, the high priest Caiaphas was actually a member of this group of uh, individuals called the Sadducees. Caiaphas was a Sadducee. Okay? And the Sadducees, they were actually a small party of uh, aristocratic priests who really were more concerned with keeping control of their power within the Sanhedrin and keeping control of the wealth within their family than they were with living a holy life that honored the Lord and His Word. History tells us that they were very worldly-minded individuals, and they had only a, a very superficial interest in the things of the Lord. Scripture also paints for us the picture that the Pharisees and Sadducees, they didn't get along. Okay? They actually had uh, very opposing views when it came to some of their theological uh, doctrines and beliefs. They didn't like each other. Okay? And they had some very uh, stark differences. Okay? And actually, in, the, in fact, Paul, in the book of Acts, he will uh, exploit some of their known differences and he'll cause quite the commotion when he is placed before the Sanhedrin and uh, the Romans are trying to figure out what's the whole big deal with Paul and why is there this? And so they... They put him in the Sanhedrin, and then he starts talking about, oh, it's because of the resurrection, and starts throwing out these doctrines that people are, were very different on, and, and, and he caused quite a commotion and quite a scene there within the Sanhedrin. So they were not friends. Okay? They were not people that usually got along. And I find that interesting to note, because even though the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they were diametrically opposed to one another, they joined forces in coming against Jesus. I guess they believed in that old proverb that states, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they've joined forces and they've come here. And these religious elites have come out uh, to uh, test Jesus. It tells us there in verse 1. Okay? They wanted to see what Jesus could do. And it wasn't a test that one passed or failed, but something used as a measurement. Okay? They, they wanted to measure Jesus up. They wanted to, to see where his weaknesses were at. Maybe some of his strengths. They wanted to see what he could do. The testing that they had in mind had nothing to do with really trying to find out whether or not Jesus was who he says he was, or that he was from the Lord as he claimed to be from the Father. It had nothing to do with that. Okay? The wording indicates that they were hoping to be able to either entangle uh, Jesus in some sort of sin by doing something he shouldn't have done, or by asking him to do something that would make him seem inferior, and then, and then to either use that sin or that uh, seeming weakness as a means to discredit him. You know, uh, my silly mind, I always think of that dumb question, you know, can, rock, can God make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? And you're like, oh yeah, you're God, you can't figure it out. And it's like, that's, that's foolish. But, you know, maybe it was that kind of thing, that they were just trying to come and question him and ask him to do something and say, oh, see, he can't do it. You know, he's weak. Uh, and so uh, the, uh, they come and they're testing Jesus 
Okay? And, it, and the th- whole thought behind it was that if that, they could discredit Jesus, then the Pharisees and the Sadducees would be able to retain their powerful influence over the people as the religious authorities of that day. And so they asked Jesus to show them a sign from heaven. They requested something to be done that would prove to them that Jesus was who he said he was, and that he was sent by the Father. And, and though they said this, we know that they were really not interested in knowing if Jesus was from heaven or not. Okay? Again, they were only looking for something to discredit him. If you do some word studies on that word test, that's really what it meant. It wasn't a matter of, we want to really find out if he's from the Lord and, and genuine. It was... Let's, let's stumble him. Let's trap him. Let's you know, entangle him in some kind of thing and that we can discredit him. And so that was their intention and desire. Okay? This isn't the first time that the Jews have come requesting a sign from Jesus. This is actually not even the first time for the Pharisees themselves have come already and requested a sign from Jesus. And we've studied that portion already, if you guys remember, back in Matthew chapter 12. Verse 38, the scribes and the Pharisees asked to see a sign after Jesus healed a man of demon possession. And he spoke to the Pharisees Pharisees about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Do you guys remember that account? Remember Jesus, he healed out the demon and then they're like, oh, he cast out demons by the power of Satan, you know. And he says, you guys are, you know. You guys are crazy, you know. That makes no sense at all. And he tells them about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And then what was their conclusion? Well, we want to see a signing. He just healed someone from demon possession. And so it's quite humorous to think of them asking for a sign. But in John chapter 2, okay, uh, after clearing out the temple, the temple, the Jews asked for a sign. And they asked for a sign to be shown to prove he was from the Lord. And he had authority to do as he did as he went in and and he had made a a whip and he cleared out the temple and overturned tables. They wanted to say, you want to see a a sign to prove who you are. And verse 18 of chapter 2, the book of John. Also in John chapter 6, verse 30, the people also, they came and they asked Jesus to give a sign to them immediately after he had just fed them miraculously from a few loaves and a couple fish. These people came and said, we want to see a sign from heaven. And then they said, you know, our father, uh, you know, Moses, and, and we were led through the desert and God fed us from manna from heaven. You know, what can you do? And uh, it's interesting, they had just been fed. Uh, from a small amount of loaves, thousands of people. It's interesting that each of the previous times Jesus was asked to perform a sign, it never seemed to be because people were genuinely interested in who he was or where he come, came from. They each had their own reasons why they asked. Okay? Previously, when asked in Matthew 12 by the scribes and Pharisees, they stated they wanted to see a sign as evidence. But in reality, he had just healed a man, you know, from demon possession, uh, right before their eyes. It was an act of God, and that's what he explained to them. He said, you know, if your guys cast out demons, then, you know, what power do they do it by? You know, obviously, if, if I can do this, then I'm from the Lord. And he tried to reason with them and explain to them, right? In John chapter 2, the people were more concerned over their lost prophets, from Jesus clearing out the temple than they were with knowing who Jesus really was. They were all upset because they were wrecking their business. 
or he, he was wrecking their business. And in John 6, uh, Jesus tells us, actually, that the people were basically just looking for another free meal when they asked him to show them a sign. They, they got fed a whole bunch of food, and then they came back and said, hey, show us another sign. You know, our fathers fed us for 40 years out in the desert with manna. What can you do? And they were just looking for another free meal. You know, miracles and signs as the Pharisees and Sadducees asked for, they do not convince people of their sin. They do not convict people of their sin. And they don't give people a desire for salvation. Okay? And we see that uh, throughout the scripture. And, and we need to emphasize and, and prioritize that we are people that will seek the Savior and not signs. These people had the Savior right before them, and yet they were still seeking for signs. And we need to realize in our own lives today, we, we don't want to emphasize signs. We want to emphasize the Savior. Okay? We want to seek Him. Okay? Luke chapter 16 Verses 19 through 31, they tell of the account of the rich man and Lazarus. Okay, if you guys know of that account, okay, the, the rich man uh, lived all and you know, had everything and in an abundance, and Lazarus was a beggar, and, and they died, and they're pictured in Abraham's bosom. And, and <coughs> excuse me, the rich man was, was speaking to Abraham, and he begged Abraham uh, that he would send Lazarus to his brother's house. Uh, because he believed that if someone went to them from the dead, that, that they would repent. You know, the, the rich man was really worried about his brothers. They, they needed the Lord. He didn't want them to come where he was uh, at. And so he's like, please send Lazarus to go speak to them, and, and they'll believe him. And it's interesting, because Abraham said in reply, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Luke 16, verse 31. You know, Abraham said, you know what? They have Moses. They have the prophets. That's the Old Testament, right? The Moses and the prophets. They have the Word of God. Okay? If they're not going to listen to that, they're not going to listen to someone that comes to them and has risen from the dead. We think we would. We think, oh, that would be incredible. I'll, God really get my attention then, and I'll really surrender to Him. And, but it's not true. Scripture shows us it's not true. In John chapter 11... Jesus raised a man named Lazarus, not the same guy, different guy, the same name, raised a man named Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. He raised him from the dead. And you know what the chief chief priest did? Instead of responding in repentance and glorifying the Lord and worshiping him and and just being awed at, at who he was and what he was able to do, their response was that they plotted on how to kill not only Jesus, but now they said, we want to kill Lazarus too. Okay? Because him walking around, you know, that's not good. You know, he's going to have testimony and we don't want any of that. And so someone being raised from the dead who was in the tomb for, uh, you know, they said a three, or, I forget, a three or four days, he's already been in there and his body's probably starting to you know, smell. They're like, don't open up. Raised from the dead. The response was not glorification of the Lord. The response was, we need to stop that. Okay? Miracles and signs, they they were happening all around. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they refused to believe them, even though there was no other reasonable explanation for what was happening. Their request for yet another sign was evidence of their hard hearts and their unwillingness to believe. 
Let's continue. Verse 2 and 3, it says, He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Jesus speaks here about how the people were able to discern the future, uh, weather, based upon the color of the sky. People back in that day, they didn't have radar and and satellites and all that kind of stuff to help forecast the coming weather. And so they, (coughs) excuse me, they relied upon other methods. And one way to help discern the coming weather and to be able to plan accordingly was based upon the color of the sky. If the sky was red at night, they believed that it would be a nice day the next day. And if in the morning the sky was red, they believed that the weather would be poor. Okay? Uh, there's an old adage out there, there's a couple of different ways to say it, but one is, uh, red sky tonight, sailor's delight. Red sky in morning, sailor's warning. Okay? Or sometimes they put shepherd in there. You know, Red sky tonight, shepherd's delight. Red sky in morning, shepherd's warning. And, and there actually has some scientific evidence to support uh, this theory and to back it up. A red sky appears when dust and, and small particles are trapped in the atmosphere by high pressure. Okay? And, and really the, the particles and stuff, they block out the light spectrums, the lighter colors, the shorter wavelength colors. And so only colors like red and, and orange, those, those are the colors that kind of break through. And so those are the only ones that we see as it passes through a high pressure uh, area And so what happens is uh, this blue light scatters, it leaves only the red light and gives this sky this, this red appearance. Okay? And the sky uh, at sunset, because the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, okay? as the sun would set in the west, uh, and if it was red, it means that high pressure is moving in from the west, usually because of the trade winds. Storms and stuff, they travel from west to east. And so usually they're coming across. And if the sun's setting and you're seeing red sky, it means you've got high pressure okay, on the horizon that's coming. Okay? Conversely, a red sky in the morning means that the high pressure is already past you. Okay? And it's most likely to be followed by a low pressure coming in, which would oftentimes bring with it poor weather, bad wind, uh, and, and heavy rains. And so there was actually some proof to this theory of red skies. Uh, it wasn't always accurate, but it, they used it. And, and Jesus, he ridiculed the Pharisees and Sadducees, calling them hypocrites, because they were able to forecast the weather, but they weren't able to understand the signs of the times. If they were if there were any people amongst all the people, if there were any people at all that should have been able to discern the signs of the times, it should have been the religious elite, those who had been entrusted with the Word of God. Uh, They were given signs to look for, and they were even given days to count, actually, where they should have known when their Messiah was coming. If they would have studied the scriptures and been in the word, they would have known. And so he really comes down hard upon these guys. Okay? Uh, the prophet Daniel. Okay? Uh, we'll get more into this probably when we do our um, triumphal entry uh, Palm Sunday service. But the, the prophet Daniel, okay? he was met by an angel. 
uh, named Gabriel that informed Daniel of the time when Messiah would come and then be cut off. Gabriel told Daniel that there would be 69 weeks of years. Okay? Uh, every seven years would be, it would be like a week. Uh, and so uh, uh, 69 weeks, Messiah would come and then be cut off. And so uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 26, I'll read it to you. It gives us a countdown, a timeline for when the Messiah would come. Verse 24 says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Speaking of the Messiah. Know therefore and understand, Gabriel says to Daniel, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven plus 62 is 69, so 69 weeks. Okay? The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. So the seven weeks will happen, then the 62 weeks will happen, and then Messiah is going to be cut off. 69 weeks from the declaration to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls. As soon as that went forth, they could count the days. Okay, it's time now. Messiah should be here. The command to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the walls happened in the book of Nehemiah. And when King Artaxerxes gave permission and provision to Nehemiah to do that very thing, to go into Jerusalem and to rebuild the city, to rebuild the walls. And you can read about that rebuilding project in Nehemiah and Ezra. If the Israelites would have counted the 69 weeks of seven years, they would have known that the time for their Messiah was upon them. And so he calls them hypocrites. If anybody should have known the signs of the times, it's you guys. Not only did they have Daniel's prophecy, they also had other prophecies that specifically detailed the coming and the ministry of the Messiah. The fact that the Messiah would be born of a virgin in Bethlehem, yet called out of Egypt and known as a Nazarene, three different locations. Like, How is he going to cover all three different things? Well, Jesus did that was born in Bethlehem of a virgin, but had to escape to Egypt, was called out of Egypt, and then went and lived in, Nazareth, uh, in the city of Nazareth. Nazarene. And so he was a Nazareth. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 5, they speak of a forerunner to the Messiah that would come in the spirit of Elijah. John the Baptist was this forerunner, and they all knew about him. They came out to see him in the desert. And the very message that, was, that he was to proclaim, prepare the way, was the message that John was speaking. It was the message that the forerunner was going to have. And so they, they should have been able to put that together. Isaiah 61 says that the Messiah will be anointed to preach good tidings to the poor and heal the brokenhearted. Everyone, everyone was amazed at the Jesus' anointing as he taught throughout the synagogues. That's what he would do. He'd go into the synagogues. People were amazed with the anointing upon him, the authority in which he spoke. And so we see, wow, all these things, you know, all these things point to the Messiah, right? Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6, detailed how the Messiah would come and, and heal the blind, the deaf, the lame, and the mute. Hey, we just read last week 
how Jesus healed the blind, the lame, the, the mute, the crippled. You know, he's doing all the things that the Messiah was supposed to do, was prophesied to do. Psalm 78 verse 2 teaches us that the Messiah will come and he'll speak in parables. And since the last rejection of Jesus, he's taught predominantly in parables. And so we see, if anyone should have known the signs of the times, if anybody should have known, that it should have been the people that had all the clues and the people that were entrusted with the clues and all the information. And so he calls them hypocrites. You can, you can look at the sky and, and decide and determine what the weather's going to be like in the future, but yet you can't understand the signs of the times. Hundreds of prophecies concerning the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled and the religious leaders ought to have stood up and paid attention. They did, but they didn't do it with the desire to think, it's our Messiah. They stood up and paid attention because they didn't like him stepping in on their authority and, and threatening what they had going on. Their Messiah was right before their very eyes. And so he says, you guys are hypocrites. Interesting enough, Jesus also left for us instruction that we too would know and understand the signs of another time. The disciples, in the, later on, and we continue through the book of Matthew, we're going to read that the disciples asked about what sort of signs there will be at Jesus' second coming. And at the end of the age, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, and Jesus, from that, he gave a number of descriptions of what it will be like at the end, throughout chapter 24 and, and 25 of the book of Matthew, with the clear intention of people being aware of these things in the world and being ready for Christ's second coming. Matthew 24, verse 44, Jesus says, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Just as the Pharisees and Sadducees should have known the signs of the times, we too, we ought to know and understand the signs and times that we live in today. We don't want to be hypocrites like these Pharisees and Sadducees who were given all the clues before them and yet were ignorant to the signs of the times. We don't want to be that way. We need to realize and understand the signs of the times that we live in today. Okay, Jesus is coming back for His bride and we need to be ready. I hope that you have that desire to be ready when He comes. That's, what he, that's why he gave us all the information. Here are all the signs of the times. Here's all that's going to happen. These are just going to be birth pains. You'll see this happen. There'll be wars and rumors of wars. But that's just going to be the beginning. Then they're going to see, it'll be like the days of Noah. And then you're going to see this and you're going to see this. And we need to be able to re- look around and realize, you know what? A lot of those signs that he spoke about, we see today. And so we need to be ready for His second coming. We need to be ready for His return. When He's going to come for His bride, I hope that when He does come, we would find ourselves ready for His coming. Verse 4, it says, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. (coughs) Excuse me. 
Jesus identified this generation as wicked and adulterous for seeking a sign. That word wicked it, uh, does not just mean evil, but it implies also moral corruption as well. And so they had allowed themselves... This, this generation to become influenced by those in power. And because of that influence, they were blinded from the truth. I think when we look at it and we say wicked, we can say, okay, I understand that. But why adulterous? Why, why would he call this generation an adulterous generation? And this is why. Because they had left the Lord and they had worshipped and served gods of their own making. It was a spiritual adultery. God had made a covenant with the nation of Israel to be their God, and they were to be His people. But the Israelites left the Lord and went after false idols and gods of their own likening. They made up their own traditions and their own ways, and they, they glorified those things and sought after those things. That covenant that was supposed to be like a marriage covenant a commitment to one another to say, uh, you're going to be my bride and, and I, you know, I'm going to be your groom and we're going to be committed forever and we're going to stick through this. Okay, that type of relationship, that's the relationship the Lord had with Israel. And they had broken that relationship. They had broken that covenant. The nation of Israel cheated on the Lord. They broke that covenant with Him. It's interesting, I've been reading just devotionally uh, through the Minor Prophets lately. And uh, there's actually an entire book of uh, the Old Testament and Minor Prophets that speaks about the spiritual adultery that the nation had committed against the Lord. It's the book of Hosea. Okay? The, the prophet Hosea was even asked by the Lord to use his life as an illustration of the harlotry that was going on. And the Lord asked Hosea to marry a harlot her name was Gomer, if you guys recall or are familiar with the, the account. And he married this harlot only to have her continually run off with other men and return to her ways of harlotry. And I was like, man, it's, it breaks your heart to read of this adultery that's taking place. And the Lord, through Hosea, he stated in verse 12 of chapter 4, he said, My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. Jesus likened the generation that seeks after a sign as adulterous, because their hearts were not centered upon the Lord. All, they, all that asked for a sign, they had ulterior motives. That They were self-serving motives when they asked for signs. And so he says, that's adulterous. Also, I, I think you can also see that the generation can be characterized as adulterous in their appetite for more than what had been provided. God had provided them with a timeline through Daniel and in all sorts of details through the other prophets. But they were not satisfied with what God had provided. And they wanted more. And that really, not to, not to simplify it too much, but that's what adultery often comes down to. Someone not being satisfied with what has been provided and seeking for something more. Seeking for something else. Having a, a, an unhealthy appetite for things that uh, more than what has been provided. 
Their seeking for another sign was just evidence that they were not satisfied with what God had provided and they were wanting more. They were seeking after something else. You know, spiritual, spiritual adultery can even happen today. As we too can, can seek after other things and try to find satisfaction in other things. And we need to be careful. We need to, to remain faithful to that covenant, that relationship that we've established with the Lord. Remain faithful to the Lord. And, and we need to find complete satisfaction within Him and our relationship with Him. We don't need to be seeking after other things because we find satisfaction in that relationship with the Lord. And so we need to remain faithful. And, you know, and it's, diff- it's not ourselves, but it's that idea that we just remain committed to the Lord. And He gives us the strength to be faithful. And so when we have that, we've entered into that relationship with the Lord as well. And so we need to be weary and mindful and beware uh, of the spiritual adultery that we can sometimes commit, looking for satisfaction in other things. We need to be careful of that. Jesus, again, he informed the group that the only sign that would be given to them was the sign of the prophet Jonah. Okay? This is actually the same exact answer that Jesus had given previously in the book of Matthew. And we covered this already. Uh, and, but for the sake of those who, who may have forgotten or who weren't with us, it was a few months ago. And I want to explain what is meant by the sign of the prophet Jonah. If you recall the account of Jonah, you'll remember that Jonah was called by God to go to the city of Nineveh. Jonah, however, didn't want to go to Nineveh. And so he disregarded God's calling and he tried to escape via ship out of the port of Joppa with the desire to head to the city of Tarshish. Tarshish. While Jonah was in the boat on the sea, God sent a great storm upon the waters. And it's interesting that all the people on the board, they recognized that this was, this was a supernatural type of storm. This was something very crazy. And so they said, everyone needs to seek their God and find out who, who got them mad. And, and uh, they finally were able to determine that Jonah was the cause for this great storm. And the people had no choice but to throw Jonah overboard into the sea. And that is when God had a great fish swallow Jonah whole. He dwelt within the belly of the fish. It tells us for three days and three nights before the Lord had the fish vomit Jonah back up onto dry land. Kind of gross, but that's what it tells us what happened. And now when it says, actually when it says three days and three nights, we talked about this uh, last time, but we need to realize that this was an idiomatic phrase. It didn't actually mean three 24-hour periods. If there was any part of a day, they would count that as a full day. So three days, three nights uh, doesn't necessarily mean that he was in the uh, belly of the fish for 24, 48, 72 hours, right? Uh, That wasn't what it actually meant. Okay, We see that uh, this... Uh, type of counting uh, of days was used often. Uh, The Jews of that day and Christ's day counted any part of a day as a full day. And so uh, not only in the book of Jonah do we hear about that, but also uh, in the book of Esther, there's an example of that. And we also will see it uh, in in Christ in his three days uh, and three nights in the tomb. Okay. The point of the matter, as we look at what is the sign of the prophet of Jonah, the point of the matter is that Jonah's time in the belly of the fish became a type, it became a foreshadowing of Christ. 
Okay? It pictures for us beautifully the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jonah was buried in the belly of the great fish and then on the third day returned to dry land. Christ, as we'll be studying in a few uh, weeks as we look at uh, Resurrection Sunday and just all that happened with the uh, resurrection, the crucifixion, Christ is going to be crucified and buried as well, and then on the third day, rise from the grave and return, just like Jonah did. And so the only sign Jesus was going to give to them was a sign of his death and resurrection, that he would die, but on the third day would rise back to life. After denying their request for a sign, Jesus left them and departed. It's interesting that uh, Mark's gospel tells us that they yet again got into a boat, went across the Sea of Galilee to the northeastern shores of Bethsaida. We see here a a pattern that Jesus and his disciples kept to. Each time Jesus was rejected, he and his disciples would withdraw from the crowds and get away. When Jesus was rejected by his hometown of Nazareth and then by Herod, he and the disciples, they withdrew to Bethsaida, actually the same place. When Jesus was rejected by the scribes and Pharisees, he and the disciples, they withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And here again we see when Jesus is rejected by the Pharisees and Sadducees, he and the disciples withdrew yet again to the city of Bethsaida, to the area of Bethsaida. And I'm not entirely sure. It doesn't tell us why Jesus held to this type of pattern. Perhaps it involved uh, him just realizing that he wasn't on his own timeline. And so he needed to uh, get away from time to time. Let things settle down and come back because he was operating on God's timeline. Uh, perhaps it's that. But I, I see something else there. I think it's worth noting uh, I think that perhaps he left because there, there just wasn't anything left to say to them. The groups willingly rejected Jesus and he was just going to move on. And so that's what we see. The people rejected him. He went on to the next place and he would minister to those people. It's interesting, after each time he was rejected by the Jews, okay, he would go out and minister to the multitudes, the Gentiles oftentimes, and, and they would receive him gladly. And he would heal them and feed them and, and do all sorts of things. He'd come back and then get rejected. And I think it's interesting because never in Scripture do you see Jesus begging someone to change their mind about him. When people rejected Jesus, you don't see him try to plead with them okay? and do everything in, in his power to persuade them to reconsider Right? When, he, when he went to the, the rich young ruler, he says, Hey, sell everything you got, and uh, then come and walk with me, and you'll be, you know, you'll be good to go. And, and the rich young ruler walks away. Jesus didn't say, Okay, wait, 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 wait. You know, just sell a few things, and then come hang out with us, and you'll see how it works, and you know, eventually we'll get the... You don't see that. He kind of... Oftentimes he was just truthful, honest. Straightforward. Most of the time, he started talking about parables later, but he had already given a very clear presentation of who he was. And, and if you didn't want to surrender to him and his ways, he'd let you make that decision. And, and the same is true today. God's given to us, a, 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 I believe, a free will to choose to surrender to him or not. 
He's not going to chase us down and beg us to repent. Oh, please come back. Please come back. I really need you. He, that's not, we don't see that. His heart is for us. Don't get me wrong. He wants to see us. Scriptures talk about how he desires that none should perish. But he's not going to drag you kicking and screaming. He gives you a choice. Okay? He's not going to demand us to follow Him. And so we need to, to make that choice and make that commitment. Say, I'm going to follow you. I'm not going to let you just come and, and, and walk away from me. I'm going to stick with you. Verse 5. Now when His disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. As Jesus and his disciples arrived in the region of Bethsaida again, the disciples recalled that they had forgotten to bring any bread along with them. Bethsaida was actually the site of the first feeding of the multitudes, the feeding of the 5,000. And perhaps, as they arrived on scene, the disciples started recalling what had happened there the last time they were there. Maybe they were started to recall how the bread was multiplied and how awesome it was. And perhaps they started asking around, hey man, who's, who's got the bread? You know, who brought the bread? And they're, and they're talking and then they come to find out nobody brought any bread. <laughs> you ever do that? I, I find that, uh, forget your lunch at home, I do that, and I, I just, it's like you're driving into work, and you get to that point where it's like, as soon as it's like too far to turn around and go get it, that's when you remember. It's like instantly. You're like, oh, man, I forgot my lunch. And it always stinks because if it was something I was really looking forward to, it means my boys were really looking forward to it as well, and there's not going to be any when I get home. But that's what it seems to happen here. So these guys are going, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, we forgot the bread. We don't have any bread. The disciples, they forgot the bread. And, and something is interesting happens. When it dawns upon them that they have no bread, here comes Jesus and he has something to say quite interesting. And it seems, you know, that as soon as the disciples realized, that's when Jesus came and he warns them about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And as we've already read, we know that Jesus wasn't speaking at all about bread. Okay, but that's not what, what the disciples thought. Okay? I imagine that as soon as the disciples heard the word leaven, they immediately focused in on bread. Okay? Verse 7 says that they, they reasoned among themselves. It's like they huddled together and were like, He knows we forgot the bread. What are we going to do? You know? And uh, these guys really, I think, are comical sometimes as I paint the picture and I see this. <laughs> but these guys, uh, what are we going to do? Well, verse 8 Jesus responds, but Jesus being aware of it. Jesus was aware of the disciples' thinking. He knew their thoughts just as he knows our thoughts. The disciples thought they were having a private meeting to discuss what Jesus meant about the bread, but Jesus knew what was going on. And it's a minor point, but something I thought worth mentioning. The Lord knows our thoughts. He sees all. He knows all. There's nothing that is kept secret from the Lord. And I believe there are some that think that they're keeping God in the dark about certain areas of their life and they've got God fooled. And it's like, I'm playing this church game and I'm playing this thing and I think I got it fooled. You're not fooling anyone. 
There are no secrets with the Lord. And the, the cool thing, or the I think it's just awesome, you know, some people might think of that when we realize God, there's no secrets with God. Some of us maybe kind of don't like that, maybe because we've been trying to hide things. But I think for those of us who are just open with the Lord and realize that, I think it's very freeing. Okay? When we realize He knows all, it can be very freeing to know that He sees all, He knows all, and He still loves me. And He still desires good things for me. That's a huge relief and a blessing. We need to stop trying to hide things from the Lord. He knows all. He sees all. He was aware of what these disciples were thinking. And he continues, it says, Oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you don't understand? I do not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus seems to gently, I think, rebuke the disciples for not understanding what he was talking about regarding his warning about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, the rebuke was, it was really a bit of a double whammy, too, if you think about it. Okay? Uh, not only did they not understand that Jesus wasn't talking about bread or the lack thereof, but they were also worried about something that they really shouldn't have been worried about at all. They, that they should have learned by now not to worry about not having bread. Because even Jesus, even if Jesus was talking about bread, which he wasn't, but if he was, shouldn't the disciples have realized by now that not having bread wasn't a problem for the Lord? Okay? And that's, what he, that's why he brings up the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Jesus was basically just telling them, come on, guys, how did you figure it out yet? I, I can supply bread for us. Okay? You don't have to be worried and freaked out about not having bread. Don't you remember how much was left over for you guys after the 5,000 picked up 12 baskets? Okay? After the 4,000, there were seven large baskets. Well, come on. Okay? How is it you don't understand that I'm not talking about bread? Jesus then he reiterates his warning and tells them again to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. In verse 12, our final verse, it says, Then... They understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The disciples, they, they finally understood Jesus wasn't talking at all about bread, but about doctrine. Okay, doctrine speaks about the teachings and beliefs of a particular group. Okay? The Pharisees and Sadducees, they had different doctrine. And Jesus warned the disciples to beware of both of them. The word beware means to, to pay attention or to be mindful of something or someone. And why do you suppose Jesus wanted the disciples to beware or to pay attention, to be mindful of the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? He kind of gives us the answer here. It's because their doctrine was like leaven. Okay? Leaven, you guys know what that is, right? It's yeast. Okay? You put it in a bread. Right? Leaven something that's very, very small but it has a significant impact. Okay? Many of the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees may have seemed all right, but there were some things that were no good. And it only took a little bit of bad doctrine to get in and have a great effect upon everything else. Leaven 
quietly grows and it permeates the loaf of bread until the whole loaf is filled with leaven. And the same happens when bad doctrine is allowed in. It quietly spreads until it completely takes over everything else. The means by which leaven spreads throughout the dough, it's called fermentation, which is basically decay. Okay, it's, a, it's a controlled decay. Um, and, and that is the result of bad doctrine spreading. Okay? It, it leaves a trail of corruption and decay behind it. Leaven, it causes the bread to rise and to be filled up with air. Okay, that's how we get you know, little pockets of air and it causes it to rise up. And bad doctrine can also have a similar effect, causing people that are taught by it to become puffed up, to become prideful, feeling like they are above others, that their ways are better than other ways. It puffs up. And so he says, you've got to be aware of it because it's like leaven. It's bad. Okay? It has all these bad influences and impacts. What was the bad doctrine of these two groups of people? The Pharisees, as we've already noted in our studies, were ones that not only taught a strict adherence to the written law, but also to the oral law, the traditions of the elders. You know, to, to sum up their doctrinal position, we could easily say that the doctrine of the Pharisees was a doctrine of legalism. They believed that everyone needed to live up to their strict observance of the law. More attention was given to following the letter of the law than the principles that helped form the laws. It was, you gotta, the letter of the law, you gotta reach to it, the letter of the oral attrition, you gotta live up to these expectations. If you don't live up to these expectations, you know, you'll never have a good standing with God. You know, God will not be happy with you unless you live this extremely holy life completely to the letter of the law. That was the doctrine of the Pharisees. Legalism. And Jesus was warning his disciples against legalism. We need to be mindful of that as well. Can't allow legalism into our own lives and into our church because it's going to cause problems. Just like this picture of leaven and what it does. We have to be careful of that. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they did not believe in the oral tradition. They only believed that one had to follow the Torah, which was the first five books of the Old Testament, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay? And so as we think of that, you might think, yeah, that's good. You know, good job, guys. You know, it's good that they don't equal the, uh, equate the oral law with the written law, and they hold the written law with a high esteem. Uh, but that would be a false uh, assumption. Okay? The Sadducees, they actually didn't believe in the inspiration of any of the other Old Testament books either. Okay? They didn't believe in the books of history, poetry, any of the books of prophecy. Only the first five books, and that was it. Okay? They didn't believe in the resurrection, because it wasn't, the doctrine of resurrection wasn't in the, the Old Testament in the first five books. They didn't believe uh, in angels or spirits or an afterlife. They believed that the soul just died with the body. There was no heaven. There was no hell. Another big tenet of their faith was that man had absolute moral freedom. Okay? Man can do whatever they wanted to do as long as it wasn't strictly prohibited within their first five books. If it's not in there, you can do whatever you want. Okay? You, you know, you're your own master, you're your own boss, do what you want to do. Okay? 
They overemphasized free will and allowed all sorts of things that would be strictly prohibited by the likes of the Pharisees. Okay? And to sum up their doctrinal position, we can easily say that the doctrine of the Sadducees was a doctrine of liberalism. Jesus was not only warning against legalism of the Pharisees, but the liberalism of the Sadducees. And we need to be careful of that as well. When we start allowing people, oh yeah, there's no heaven, no hell, you just kind of do, live a good life, and it's all right, and don't make people mad, don't upset people, you know, you're good to go. You know, that, that's not accurate. That, that liberal lifestyle says, oh yeah, we'll just, just for the sake of equality, let's all just agree to get along, and we're going to accept a sin, and it's going to be okay. That's not good. And Jesus is warning the disciples about that type of philosophy and theology of liberalism. We need to be careful of it as well. It was important for the disciples to know about the bad doctrine of these Pharisees and Sadducees so that they could stay clear of it themselves and also that they could teach others to stay away from it as well. And we need to be the same. Okay? Let's be aware of the doctrine of legalism and liberalism. Okay? And that... It can come into and infiltrate the church. We need to be careful about that. We need to be aware of that. We don't want to be allowing that kind of thoughts and philosophy and teachings into the church. It leaves behind a trail of destruction and it leaves behind a trail of prideful, puffed up people. And it's not healthy. We need to be mindful of it. As we wrap things up here, we're going to uh, just want to highlight some of the things we talked about here this morning. Uh, we need to be mindful that we need to be looking for the Savior and not for signs. Okay? Our emphasis is upon Jesus Christ, not upon miracles. Okay? Do they exist? Do they believe? I still believe God works miracles, okay? but that's not our emphasis. That's not what we seek after. We need to under- know and understand the signs of the times that we live in today. Okay, especially as we consider the Lord's second coming. We want to be ready for His coming. We want to be faithful to the Lord. Make sure that our satisfaction is complete in Him. Okay? We don't want to commit spiritual adultery with the Lord. Okay? God's given to us a free will to choose to surrender to Him or not. He's not going to come dragging us to a relationship with Him. He wants us to choose to love Him, to choose to follow Him, and to surrender to Him. We were reminded that nothing's kept secret from the Lord. He knows and sees all, and He still loves us still. And hopefully you would be able to receive that and just be comforted in knowing that. And then lastly, we just looked at how Jesus warned us about these dangers of, of allowing the spread of the doctrine of legalism and liberalism into our life and into our church. And so we need to be mindful of those things. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Walter and the team, they're going to come and lead us in another song, but I'm going to close in a prayer. Father, we just thank you for uh, this morning and your word. And I pray that, uh, Lord, as we just made some observations and uh, highlighted some application for our own lives, I pray that we would take what we've uh, received today, Lord, that we continue to meditate upon it, that we continue to allow you to uh, speak to us. And if we have thoughts about it, we can talk about it with other people and share your word with others. And Lord, I just uh, do thank you. Uh, for your word. Thank you for this church body. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us to be mindful of the things that you were speaking to the disciples. Lord, I know it wasn't just for them, but it's a warning and there's expectations in it for us as well. And so may we honor you in our lives. May we live uh, a life that pleases you, Lord. And may we just rejoice in knowing 
uh, of your love for us and the forgiveness you've given to us. And Lord, um, just look forward to continue to, to worship you uh, and to fellowship with the body this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.